Welcome to Fresh Takes on Tech. I'm your host, Vani Estes, Vice President of Innovation for the International Fresh Produce Association. On the podcast, we get to hear from people that are shaping the produce industry with solutions to our biggest problems. Join me as we uncover the opportunities and advancements shaping the future of produce through a tech lens. Welcome to Fresh Takes on Tech, where insight meets innovation. Hello, and welcome back to the podcast. As we continue our season on Climate Smart Ag, we're speaking today to Marta Batista, Global Director of Strategic Research and Technology Adoption at Driscoll's. Driscoll's is a leader in sustainability in the produce industry, and I'm really excited to dig deeper and hear more about what Marta's doing and what the company's doing. So welcome. Thanks for being here from Portugal. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Thanks, Bonnie. Thanks for having me and for having Driscoll's participating in the podcast. It is indeed a coincidence. I'm talking to you out of our offices in Zambujeira, Portugal, where thankfully it is raining a lot today. I won't really need it. Excellent. So can you start by defining Driscoll's primary sustainability commitments, especially in the context of addressing climate change and environmental concerns? I will try. Uh, <laughs> we decided to frame our sustainability commitments around more berries with less resources. Because fundamentally, it all would come down to doing more with less. However, having said that, there are a few resources or a few priorities that, are, that we have listed above others globally. And I say this globally because then specific business units, say the Driscoll's in the United States and Mexico, Driscoll's in Europe, they may have additional priorities that are very related to their geographies. And I can give a couple of examples. How good. But Driscoll's has set itself to try to achieve a 30% increase in water use efficiency, and that will be in liters of water per kilogram of fruit effectively sold. Wow. Um, so water use efficiency, 30% increase in water use efficiency by 2030. We're going to take smaller baby steps in between. We thought 30s a lot at a global scale. So by 2027, we'll try to at least be able to demonstrate 10%. And then from there, increase, you know, increase efficiencies as far as water use. Very similar to pesticide and fertilizers, we're using the same logic of more berries with less resources. We set the similar parameters for fertilizer use and pesticide use. Naturally, in the case of pesticide, we don't want to use more of it. We want to do 30% more berries with the same pesticides or the same berries with less pesticides. Which pesticides was one of the first questions we asked ourselves, like, wait, are they all the same? Are they all equally impactful? So there's a lot to unfold behind each one of these specific goals related with these three inputs and resources in the case of water and fertilizers. As far as carbon, greenhouse gas emissions, the, the Driscoll's board encouraged us to thrive, to achieve, to be net neutral by 2030 in tiers one, three, two, and tier three to be addressed beyond that thing. 
is challenging. Uh, and uh, yeah, those I are very it. challenging goals. Very, these are very challenging. Yeah, yeah, um, good for you. It's challenging, you know, not only because we don't think we have the tools to get there, particularly as far as greenhouse gas emissions, and we keep growing. So that brings that additional challenge of uh, not only reducing at the pace at which you are today, but address growth as well. So fairly ambitious, but uh, certainly exciting. And you mentioned that there might be some differences regionally. So is that like the overall framework? Everyone has to fit beneath that, but they may have additional goals or, or how? what are the differences regionally? Correct. In some regions, um, for example, where I am right now, 2030 and 30% increase in water use efficiency is just not enough. Mm. Already, already the growers are running out of water, which is managed by, um, you know, a water association board, a water board. And so in this specific region, we just have to do more and faster, including uh, capture of rainwater, recirculation of the drain that comes out of the pots and then being reused into the same crops. So in some regions, uh, we may have to go faster and deeper as far as some of these resources. But there are cases where the business units have chosen to address additional sort of sustainability goals. One example, Vani, that I think you may have heard about already is paper paperback packaging in Dota, in the Driscoll's of the United States and American Americas, which is considered more important in some regions than others. Driscoll's in Europe has already taken that step, I believe, two years ago. So there may be additional uh, goals that each region will determine and pursue because it's relevant to where they operate into the consumers of that region or that market. Oh, that makes sense. You mentioned about not having the tools, which is something I hear from a lot of people. And I think that's part of what this whole area of Climate Smart Ag is about. And grants like the USDA, Climate Smart Commodities Grants, and and everyone's trying to look at, you know, what are the tools and how do we get the tools developed and how do we get the tools adopted? So how does that kind of, how does Climate Smart Ag and those tools fit in with what you're doing? They are absolutely necessary for us to be able to achieve these goals. I don't think we can even think that we'll get there without testing validating, adopting so many of these technologies, which is exactly what, what we're doing. Today, I was walking a number of trials that are industry trials, so Driscoll's is participating, other growers are participating, and we're collaborating with the Portuguese government on a sustainability center for the dairy industry here in Zambojeda, where I am right now talking to you. And they were, they were telling me about these filters that they are testing to filter the water, the runoff of the water from the crops uh, with the goal of reusing that water. So really maximum use, wow. minimum waste. But those filters, the interesting part is they come actually from um, the medical industry. Huh. Waste. So this company, uh, I think it's NUS, they are repurposing those filters, and they actually seem to work quite great 
for that water is just one example of many, you know, technologies that we will need to test, validate, try. Some will work, some won't work. It's normal. I think we need to be prepared for some things to work and others not, not as much as we needed them. But without those tools, the berry industry, or at least Triscolls, won't be able to achieve our goals. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that I look at a lot is what solutions are out there that, you know, like from the medical industry or any other industries. And that, that was one of the reasons we started our Freshfield Catalyst Accelerator to like look at what technologies are out there, either in broad acre or completely different industries that we could bring in to solve some of these problems. Cause they're, these are huge problems and, you know, we have to, we have to try stuff that's not going to work, you know, yes. <laughs> and be yes. patient about that. <sighs> So what specific environmental challenges and climate-related issues are you addressing through your smart Climate Smart Ag initiatives? <laughs> where to start talking about <laughs> environment, where to start to talk about weather issues. Um, yeah. You know, Yvonne, you know, funny, it's, it's rare the week where we don't have an extreme weather event somewhere in the network. And I'm really Sincere when I say this, it's no, that's true. How big your network is, yeah. A heat event in I think last week was a massive heat event in southern Morocco with 50 Celsius, you know, inside the the tunnels of the crops, or um, in October. That's in crazy. October, right? <laughs> or obviously the massive El Nino that is hitting Peru, where uh, blueberry production is down. I think the last forecast I've heard, it keeps going down and down, but the last forecast I heard for the industry was something like 40%. So it's difficult to go one week without having an extreme weather event somewhere, at least for us. The toughest part is to be able to predict what and where it's going to happen. And because that's been so challenging, I think what we are learning is that we need to incorporate and be aware that extreme weather events will happen and it will happen more. So are our production systems resilient enough? Are our varieties able to cope with a heat wave or an extreme freeze? We were hoping, a few years ago, we were hoping that by now we would have some patterns and we would say, hey, yeah, in Australia, we can learn what's going on and then predict for, you know, the Northern Hemisphere. And perhaps we're not really seeing that to that extent. And so I think ourselves and a lot of other folks in the industry adopting more this mentality, this mindset of um, resiliency and extreme events will happen. So let's just count that it's it, it's so, it's certain. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I think that's really true. And it, it's the volatility. You know, it's not... It's not always too cold or not always too hot or not always too wet or not always too dry. It's just the volatility of those cycles. And as a global company, um, like you said, it, there's going to be a problem somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> and so you work mostly with networks of growers, right? So how, how do you engage and support them in adopting different climate smart ag practices? Toughest of them all. Well, any solution needs to be economically viable. And that will help align with adoption. Does it have to be economically viable right away? 
Or, you know, can you, if you show people a path on return on investment or if they use it for some period of time or, you know, how, how do you get across that barrier that it may not be instantly economically viable? Yes, that's a good point. Often I think we are able to work with our network of, our networks of growers towards a little longer time horizon. They are used to work with us to, uh, in testing new varieties or new production systems. So we can extend that period of grace if you wait for a few years. But it, it is difficult to keep a grower engaged in a climate smart solution beyond much further if it doesn't help with the bottom line, with the, with the efforts. But it, it can happen in various ways. And I think that's something to the advantage of the adoption of these tools. It can happen because they will use less fertilizer. Well, that actually helps a lot with their, yeah. with their accounting. Or something that requires less labor. It actually helps with greenhouse gas emissions, but the grower has the advantage of uh, needing less workers who drive less cars to the field, et cetera, et cetera. So many times it's a question of building a proposition that makes sense for the grower beyond the technology itself. So the economic proposition, um, the long term, effect on, on their business and how it makes them more resilient. It's it's a little bit of work beyond the, you know, just the, the trials of, say, a filter or a computer or something like that or a model. But we definitely need that collaboration with our growers. Otherwise, we can't do it alone. Yeah. So adoption is definitely a potential challenge. What are some of the other challenges and obstacles that you've encountered in trying to implement some of these strategies? There's a few specific areas related to those priorities where we're still struggling to find um, viable technologies. An example could be boron, high levels of boron in the irrigation water. You know, there aren't a lot of technologies out there that will economically viable, let's say, for us to talk to our growers and, and, and ask him to adopt tomorrow. Dealing with the salinity of the water, it's another area where there's reversal losses, there's metal drains. There are a few areas where we're still having to work with startups, developers, and just keep looking. And don't give up if we don't find those technologies right away. I think it's something I keep telling my teams, like, oh, you know, we've been working on this for a year and a half, and I don't have a easily adoptable solution to deal with the, say, the high levels of salt in the water in Southern California. It's like, okay, but here's some other things, other things that have been working. Let's adopt those. So. I think the challenge is to just don't lose focus. Even if today we don't have all the tools at our disposal, don't give up and keep working on the ones we don't have while adopting the ones we already have. But it takes persistence and time and, and, and you know, the vision to get there. Otherwise, we could just change priority and start doing something else. Yeah, I think, I mean, you and I've been working in technology for a long time and seen lots of these cycles. And, you know, I see people, I was talking to someone the other day and they were talking about something that was going on uh, in the field about using electric vehicles in the field. And they were saying, this is never going to work. Like you have to have, you know, too many vehicles in the field and this isn't an answer and this is never going to work. And I'm like, well, you needed 
a number of vehicles today, but as batteries get better. And, and I, I think you have to develop this longer view on technology development. And if something gets us halfway there, that's halfway, that's, be- that's 50% better than it was, you know, and how do we keep working at getting it better? And sometimes you may, you know, for some of your initiatives, one thing isn't going to be the 100% solution. And so you start looking at you know, what are those pieces that all build up into that solution? It's not just one silver bullet. And so it's patience. And I think, you know, the whole, we all, suddenly we all woke up in a world where, you know, we have to do something about all the climate volatility and we have to do it today, but it's going to take a while to build all those different technologies. Yeah, that's right. The example of the electric vehicles, I think it's a great one. Today, if any grower, I think, of any crop would want to replace all their ag vehicles with electrical vehicles, I would be surprised if they could do it, even if they had all the funds in the world, because yeah. they don't exist yet. Yeah. However, there are some, and some of them are actually very interested in working with growers and improving their machinery, improving the batteries, improving the AI that runs the tractor, etc. So we don't have all of them. But we have one or two, and in a few years, we'll have some more. So like to your point, Fanny, I totally agree. It's just like keep making progress steadily and don't give it up. It's what we need to do. Yeah, you have to have stuff out in the, especially in agriculture, you have to get whatever the thing is out in the field and have it get dirty and hot and wet and fix that. And then, you know, just keep improving because agriculture is different than a, a clean manufacturing floor. So. Yeah. so I have one last question for you. You get to see so many things and and travel the world and are so involved in, in what's happening with Driscoll's. What are you excited about? What are the things that that you think about that get you excited and that kind of gives you hope for where we're headed with climate smart and sustainability? I'm excited with the um... The possibility, which I believe is real, that agriculture will be possible with a dramatic reduction of synthetic pesticides. We're seeing it, we're feeling it, we're testing it. And then think about all the resources behind the making of all those uh, synthetic pesticides, all the inputs and all the power necessary. In some places, we're seeing it already today as um, a result of pressure from regulation or consumers or the market or other drivers for that change. So that is one that is, in my opinion, inevitable and will happen perhaps faster than what one could think. Because it's it's easy to get overwhelmed when you have a global network and think about all the pests and all the diseases that crops may have. But it's also nice to think about where is it working and then keep that as sort of um, a direction, a vision to propagate elsewhere. So that is one area. The other area is certainly robotics in the field Mm -hmm. that won't replace everything we do today in the same way we are doing it today. So maybe it will be many parts, you know, many different solutions to achieve what we do today. Maybe we'll change how we do things. And that's not a bad thing to do, right? To build processes and change what we do. We're working with a number of options and tools. If we can't today harvest the berries uh, with a machine, 
that's okay. Maybe we can read with a machine. Maybe we can uh, control pod renewal view with ultraviolet light and not apply the pesticides we used to and not expose the, the applicators, the people to those situations. So I'm quite excited with the evolution of smart, you know, smart, smart machinery with robotics. Some will be autonomous or some won't. And I know that this is not like new. Like you said, we've been hearing about this for decades now, but it's kind of starting to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, Marta, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. It was great talking to you. And the whole industry appreciates Driscoll's leadership and it's a beacon of sustainability. So thank you for that. Thank you, Ronnie. Thank you for the opportunity. That's it for today's episode of Fresh Takes on Tech. This entire season on Climate Smart Agriculture is funded in part by a grant from USDA for Climate Smart Commodities. See you next time.